Right. Good morning, everyone. If I haven't met you yet, my name is Ben, and it's my pleasure to be opening God's Word with you today. And if you don't know already, we're uh, in the middle of a series called Praying with Jesus, Exploring Jesus' Prayer in John 17. And you're welcome to open your Bible there now if you'd like, because that's where we'll be spending our time this morning. And last week, Adam kicked off the series for us by looking at the first five verses of John 17. And in those verses, Jesus prayed for himself. And we learnt some beautiful truths. We learnt that Jesus came to reveal God's glory to us. And that God's glory was most clearly manifested at the cross. We see both the love of God and the holiness of God united. We learnt that Jesus cares about eternal things and that in fact eternal life is not a place in the clouds with their harps and things like that. That's not even a biblical picture. Eternal life, John defines it as knowing God. We get to experience eternal life now by beginning to know God now. And we learnt that we can pray like Jesus prayed. We can pray for God's glory. We can pray for eternal life. For those who don't know him, and for those that do, we can ask that they would grow deeper in their love for Jesus. We can pray like Jesus prayed. Now this week, together, we're going to see Jesus shift in his prayer, and he begins to pray for his disciples. I'm going to read out to you what he prayed. It's a pretty large section. It's John 17, verses 6 to 19. Let me read that for us. John 17, verses 6 to 19. Jesus says this to the Father in his prayer. I've revealed you to those whom you gave me out of the world. They were yours, and you gave them to me, and they have obeyed your word. Now they know that everything you have given me comes from you, for I gave them the words you gave me, and they accepted them. They knew with certainty that I came from you, and they believed that you sent me. I pray for them. I'm not praying for the world, but for those you have given me, for they are yours. All I have is yours, and all you have is mine, and glory has come to me through them. I will remain in the world no longer, but they are still in the world, and I'm coming to you, Holy Father. Protect them by the power of your name, the name you gave me, so that they may be one as we are one. While I was with them, I protected them and kept them safe by that name you gave me. None has been lost except the one doomed to destruction so that scripture would be fulfilled. I'm coming to you now, but I say these things while I'm still with them, while I'm still in the world, so that they may have the full measure of my joy within them. I have given them your word and the world has hated them, for they are not of the world any more than I am of the world. My prayer is not that you take them out of the world, but that you protect them from the evil one. They are not of the world, even as I am not of it. Sanctify them by the truth. Your word is truth. As you sent me into the world, I have sent them into the world. For them I sanctify myself, that they too may be truly sanctified. Now I want to start with a question. How do you know what someone truly values? 
How do you learn? How do you find out what someone really cares about? Well, there are a few things you could do. You, you could look at how they plan their schedule, how they use their time. I mean, that time is valuable. Perhaps that will tell you what they care about. That might give you a clue. Or maybe you could look at what they do with their money. Money is valuable for people. So surely how they use it will give us an insight into what they care about. But what about someone's deepest, most private prayers? If you had the privilege to listen into such prayers, you wouldn't have to guess what it is they care about. You would hear firsthand what it is that that person values, what it is that they think is important. And this is what we get in John 17. Jesus allows us to listen into not just any prayer of his, but his prayer on the night before his death. And now I don't know if you've ever been with someone who knows that their death is impending, who knows that they will die the next day, but I imagine it must be a time of great clarity. They wouldn't be wasting their breath. What they're going to say, and perhaps especially what they're going to pray, will reflect what truly matters in their mind. So in John 17, we get the deep privilege of finding out what the Son of God cares for deeply. And this morning, in verses 6 to 19, we will learn about three things that characterize Jesus' disciples, and we will learn about three things that Jesus cares deeply about for his disciples. Four things that characterize the disciples, sorry, three, (laughs) and three things that Jesus cares about for his disciples. So, let's look at the first three things that describe Jesus' followers. The first one is found in verse 6, where Jesus says, I've revealed you to those whom you gave me out of the world. Now, what does this mean? It's not like Jesus is standing on Mars and as if the Father has physically taken people off the earth and put them onto another planet. Jesus is not saying he's taken them out of the geographical world and put them somewhere else. No, when Jesus is talking about the world here, he's not talking about the physical earth. He is talking about the system of this world that has been bent out of shape by our sin and is ruled over by Satan and his evil forces. It is a system where love for God seems out of place and ridicule and rejection of God seems normal. And Jesus says the Father has taken people out of this system, out of the world, and given them to Jesus. So here's the first lesson of what it means to be a follower of Jesus. The first one is to be a follower of Jesus means to come out of the world. It means to reject the world's mindset and embrace Jesus' mindset. It means to forsake the world's values in order to receive Jesus' values. Being a disciple, a follower of Jesus, requires you to embrace a whole new system of thinking and being. So, I mean, becoming a disciple is going to require a lot of work from us. We're going to have to do some work and reading the scriptures and spending time in prayer with Jesus to really be renewed and transformed and become a part of this new system that he's established, a system that Jesus rules over. It's kind of like trading in your passport to become a citizen of a different country. And in Jesus' country, there's no dual citizenship. There's no such thing as dual citizenship. We can't keep the passport that identifies us with the world. We must trade it in 
in order to become citizens of heaven. And as we enter into Jesus' system, we discover a new culture, a new way of thinking, new values. We have to completely relearn how to live. So don't be surprised if your life might seem a little weird to people around you at times. Because to be a Christian means to embrace a new system, a new way of living and thinking and being. Be surprised if people never find your life different. Because followers of Jesus have come out of the world system. That's the first thing we learn. The second thing we learn about followers of Jesus comes in the second half of verse 6. He says, I've revealed you to those whom you gave me out of the world. They were yours, you gave them to me, and they have obeyed your word. So that's the second thing. Followers of Jesus obey the word of God. Now there is possibly a double meaning going on here. So Jesus, first of all, is saying that the disciples have obeyed the words that he has received from the Father. The disciples have obeyed Jesus' teaching. But Jesus is probably also saying that they have obeyed him directly. Because in John's Gospel, Jesus is the capital W Word of God. Earlier in John's Gospel, we see this. John 1 verse 14. The Word, capital W, became flesh and made his dwelling among us. We have seen his glory, the glory of the one and only Son who came from the Father. So true disciples of Jesus not only obey the words of Jesus, his teaching, but also the capital W word of God himself. And I think there's a subtle difference between the two. It's not just enough to know what Jesus taught. We want to let Jesus' teaching lead us to Jesus himself. Let me try and explain what I mean through some experiences I've had in Bible studies. I've been involved in Bible studies where generally the objective is to to ascertain what the text means. What is its correct meaning? And we dissect the text and it's helpful for us to get a more accurate understanding of what this Bible verse means or what this passage means. It's essentially an exercise of the mind. But I've been involved in other Bible studies where it feels clearly that the, the goal, the ultimate goal, is to know and love God more deeply. It's to know and love God more deeply. So that what we're learning, we want to apply. And you see people be vulnerable with one another. You see people share their struggles as they, as they struggle with the passage and what it means and how they can apply it to their life. And they do this, they take those risks because they have a high and treasured goal, the goal of knowing Jesus. In fact, we learned that last week, knowing God is eternal life. And I just want to encourage our growth groups here today. If you don't know what our growth groups are, there are small groups, there are Bible studies. You guys, you growth groups are in many ways the lifeblood of our church. And we want you to be healthy and strong. And I want to encourage you to keep this focus in mind when you meet together. Because when you meet together, you aren't alone. The Spirit of God dwells in you. God is present. And I just want to encourage you to use your meeting times, not only for the purpose of understanding the Bible and the sermon, those are good things, but take it that step further. Pray and ask that God would lead you into a deeper love for himself. Make your ultimate goal to know and love and obey Jesus, the capital W, Word of God. Because disciples of Jesus not only obey the words of God, 
but the word of God himself. That's the second thing that should characterize us as followers of Christ in this church. And the third thing we learn about the followers of Jesus is found in verse 8. Jesus says, For I gave them the words you gave me, and they accepted them. They knew with certainty that I came from you, and they believed that you sent me. Followers of Jesus know with certainty that Jesus is from the Father, that he is the eternal God who has always existed with the Father and the Spirit. He is God himself. And the disciples of Jesus believe this. And maybe you're here today and you're not a disciple of Jesus. Maybe you're not a Christian. If that's the case, we're glad you're here. You are welcome here. You're welcome to be here each Sunday and just sit and listen. But here's something that I think this verse means for you. When it comes to your thinking about Jesus, when it comes to his claims, you need to take them into account because he claims to be God. Just read through the four Gospels, the four accounts of Jesus' life in the Bible. And his claims force you to make a decision about him. So you can't just dismiss him as a good teacher or a wise sage with some good advice. You can decide that he was a deceptive teacher if you believe he was teaching something about himself that wasn't true. You can decide that he was a madman who really believed he was God but actually wasn't. He was deceived. But what you can't do is just make some neutral decision about him. It's just sideline him in your life because he is, as C.S. Lewis says, either a liar or a lunatic or he is Lord. That's what the claims of Jesus force us to do with this historical person. And can I be so bold as to say that the first two options just don't seem that likely? I mean, what would have been his motive for lying? He got crucified for his claim to be Lord in an empire where Caesar was Lord. And it doesn't make sense that he would be some kind of lunatic either. How could some mentally unstable person come up with what most people believe to be the greatest moral teaching that has ever existed? It doesn't make sense. The disciples of Jesus believe that Jesus really did come from the Father. They accepted Jesus' claim to be the Son of God. And you know what? He invites you to be a disciple today as well. You are welcome to come and follow him. It doesn't matter what your past looks like. He invites you to become a disciple today as well. But you need to decide who he is. It's a question you must answer. So we've learned that disciples of Jesus have come out of the world, that they obey the word of God, and that they believe that Jesus is from the Father. Now in the following verses, we see, we're going to see what it is that the Son of God prays for on behalf of his disciples. We're going to get an insight into what our Lord and King really cares about for his followers. I mean, he's in the eve of his death. He's letting us in on this most intimate prayer with the Father. And so what he is going to say is absolutely relevant for all of us here this morning. And in these next verses, we're going to see three things that Jesus cares about for his followers. The first thing Jesus cares about comes up in verse 11, but we'll read from verse 9. Let me read for us. He says to his father, I pray for them, the disciples, 
I'm not praying for the world, but for those you have given me, for they are yours. All I have is yours, and all you have is mine, and glory has come to me through them. I will remain in the world no longer, but they are still in the world, and I am coming to you. Holy Father, protect them by the power of your name. The first thing we see is that Jesus cares for his followers' protection. Jesus cares for his followers' protection. He knows that they will face difficulty, danger, and even death. Now, in a safe country like Australia, you might think, why? Why is that? Why should followers of Jesus expect danger? Well, Jesus' concern is explained in verses 14 to 16, where it says, where he says, I have given them your word, and the world has hated them. For they are not of the world any more than I am of the world. My prayer is not that you take them out of the world, but that you protect them from the evil one. They are not of the world, even as I am not of it. So, so this fallen system that Satan rules over, the, the world will hate followers of Jesus. For these followers have rejected their system and their values. So on one level, we might simply look odd and people of the world will think we are ridiculous. But on another level, the fact that we've embraced a new system with new values and invite people to come under Jesus' rule to join us threatens the old system. Anyone who benefits from Satan's system will be seriously opposed to Jesus' system. If the powerful become more powerful by oppressing the weak, if the rich become richer through greed and exploitation, then a new system of people who care about the poor and the weak, a group of people who advocate honesty, integrity and equal treatment, will be a major threat to those who benefit from the old system. I've actually heard about churches in Mexico that have been threatened by the drug cartels there. Because pastors and evangelists and Christians go into different towns and they tell people about Jesus, they tell them the gospel, and people discover Jesus and they find life in him and some of them get free from their drug addiction. And so the drug cartels have noticed this and have come and threatened some of these leaders, threatened even to kill them in some circumstances. The new system that Jesus instituted is a major threat to the old system and all who benefit from it. And this is why Jesus prays for our protection. We are part of a new world order which threatens the old. We are part of a kingdom which Satan rages against. Now this is real church. But we do not need to be anxious about this. Because Jesus has already gone before us and overcome this hostility. While Jesus was in the world, he absorbed everything that the old system could throw at him. He absorbed every bit of violence and hate that Satan could muster. He overcame the old system, not by succumbing to to the old system's tactics, not by using things like violence and manipulation. He actually overcame the old system through things like love and truth and integrity. They couldn't stop him. They couldn't change him. They couldn't make him into something else. He broke the back of the old system outwitted and defeated Satan and now rules over his kingdom of followers from the right hand of God. He is victorious. And this Jesus, this Jesus is the one who prays for our protection. I don't know about you, but if the Son of God 
pray for you. And we're pretty sure that his prayer will be heard. Jesus cares for his followers' protection. Now we might be wondering what exactly is Jesus protecting us from? We've already discussed who he is protecting us from, but what are the weapons of Satan and the world? What will they use to try to use against us? Is it violence? Is it social pressure? Possibly Jesus experienced both of these things. But John 17 teaches us that one of the primary things that our enemies will attack is our unity. Jesus says in John 17, 11, Holy Father, protect them by the power of your name, the name you gave me, so that they may be one as we are one. Why does Jesus pray for our protection? So that they may be one as we are one. The second thing Jesus cares about deeply for his followers is their unity. And he isn't just talking about some kind of loose unity and association like as if we're Springbok fans or something. That was a joke. You can laugh if you want. We've got to have Wallabies level unity. Okay. No, it's not, not a very helpful example. I was actually happy that the Springboks beat New Zealand last night, so we love you guys. But maybe the point is, sorry, not maybe, the point is, Jesus prays for the deepest kind of unity between his disciples. He asks the Father to protect them, that they may experience the same unity that Jesus had with his Father. Now, not only has Jesus has existed for all eternity in perfect union with the Father, but all throughout John's Gospel, we see this deep unity between Jesus and the Father. In John 5, Jesus says, Very truly I tell you, the Son can do nothing of himself. He can do only what he sees his Father doing, because whatever the Father does, the Son also does. And he says in John 10, I and the Father are one. And Jesus prays in John 17 that the Father might protect his followers so that we might be one as Jesus and the Father are one. That's some unity. Jesus and the Father were absolutely unified in their mission to save people from the fallen world system. And so too Jesus wishes for us to be unified as his people on his mission. I just want to Go away from my notes for a second because I think this is so important. The mission of God will unite us. The mission of God will unite us. I really believe that. I really believe that we don't have to try and find unity in our church before we can go out on mission. I don't think we have to try and create unity amongst us before we can go out and make disciples and tell people about Jesus. I think we discover unity when we go out on mission as a church. The mission of God unites his people, not the other way around. So I encourage us to to go out on mission, to embrace Jesus' call to tell other people about him. And in that, I believe, we will discover unity. There's nothing like a common goal that will unite people. And the fact that Jesus is praying over our protection should also alert us to the fact that this is something will be attacked. Sorry, the fact that Jesus is praying over our unity should alert us that this is something that will be attacked. So church, listen, I'm, I'm dead serious about this. We need to be awake to the fact 
that the weapons that Satan will use will be things like gossip, bitterness, unforgiveness, harshness. So don't be surprised if you discover a desire to share a negative comment about someone. That's called gossip. Don't be surprised if that comes into your mind. Uh, Satan can suggest things to you. You can choose what you do with it, but he can suggest things to you. Don't be surprised if a thought like that will pop in your mind at times. Don't be surprised if you get a suspicious or distrustful thought about someone in your church family. Don't be surprised if you find yourself lacking the desire to join a growth group because that's something that will bring you closer to your brothers and sisters in Christ. Don't be surprised when Satan tries to attack our unity. And church, I say this because we need to protect our unity, we need to foster it, we need to be on guard, be ready, because our unity as people brings glory to God. It is a beautiful reflection of the unity within God himself, within the Trinity, the three persons who are one. So don't be surprised if you encounter various trials and temptations that threaten our unity. Because our enemy hates our unity and he will attempt to diminish it. But don't be overly worried about the enemy either. Because John 17 shows us that Jesus, the Son of God, who defeated Satan, cares deeply about our unity. And he himself prayed for our protection in this. Jesus cares deeply about the unity of his church. That's the second point. And the third thing that we learn is that Jesus cares about our holiness. John 17, verse 17, Jesus says, Sanctify them by the truth. Your word is truth. Now the word sanctify means to make holy or to set apart. Now this perfectly relates to what we learned earlier about being a disciple. We've learned that the disciple has come out of the world system. And here Jesus is praying that God would continue to set his people apart, that he would continue to sanctify him by the word of truth. And you know what? We're actually pursuing this right now. What we are doing right now is something that Jesus prayed for 2,000 years ago, that we might be growing in the truth, growing in the scriptures, being sanctified and set apart by God. I just think that's so beautiful, something that Jesus prayed for 2,000 years ago, we are pursuing right now, this morning. We are renewing our minds with the truth. And part of the reason that Jesus prayed for us to do this right now is not so that we can gain a little bit more Bible knowledge. The reason that Jesus wants to set us apart and sanctify us is so that we might have an impact in the world. This is why in the very next verse, Jesus says, As you sent me into the world, I have sent them into the world. Church, Jesus has sent us on mission. This is who we are. He has prayed for our protection, our unity, and our holiness, and he sent us into the world to share the good news of the gospel with others, to tell others about this new society that Jesus formed and invite them into it, to say that the old system is failing. Look around you. But if you would trade in your passport, you can become a citizen of heaven. This is our purpose and this is our mission as a church. This is why we're together. This is why we do what we do. 
because we want to go out and make growing disciples of Jesus. And I just want to add that while we can expect opposition, we can also expect abounding joy while we pursue this. You see, Jesus lets us in on his most intimate prayer with the Father for our joy as well. He says it in verse 13. I say these things while I'm still in the world so that they may have the full measure of my joy within them. Sometimes the Christian life is a paradox of both joy and suffering, both life and death. But don't ever fall for the lie that holiness is a killjoy. Don't ever fall for the lie that Christianity is deadening. As we imbibe in the words of Jesus, we will discover joy, we will discover clarity, we will discover truth, we will discover freedom, and it will bring joy to us. Jesus said, if you hold to my teaching, you are really my disciples. Then you will know the truth, and the truth will set you free. Joy as we learn and abide and obey Jesus' words. So Jesus prays for our protection. He prays for our unity. He prays for our holiness. And he says all these things for our benefit, that we might be effective in his mission and that we might have boundless joy. Now you might be thinking, okay, where do I possibly start? I can hardly keep up with the demands of life as it is, let alone pursue God's mission, protect our unity, and become more holy. Where do I start? Well, can I just say that we just start with Jesus. (laughs) He didn't simply come to teach us about what we should do. He became what we should be. That's the clue to understanding the last verse in our passage. He became what we should be. At the end of our passage, in verse 19, he says, For them, the disciples, I sanctify myself, that they too may be truly sanctified. Now what on earth does this mean? So Jesus sanctifies himself. He he makes himself holy. He dedicates himself to God. And somehow that leads to our truly being sanctified. How does that work? Well, this leads us into one of the central mysteries of the Christian message, the gospel. Because at the heart of the gospel, this, this message is substitution. Substitution. At the heart of the gospel is substitution. That is, Jesus, in many ways, is our representative and substitute. So he saw an unsanctified world. He saw an unholy world. He saw a people undedicated to God. And he decided to save us by becoming our substitute. He entered into our brokenness and mess and he sanctified himself. He set himself apart for God. He obeyed every word that came from the mouth of his father. He became everything that we should be and should have been. And then he went and suffered and died on the cross as our substitute. He took on all of our unholiness and brokenness and receive the penalty that we should have received. And this is why John the Baptist said this, this, this sentence I'm going to read to you now, in the first chapter. This is what he said of Jesus when he saw him. He said, look, the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. 
Before Jesus came, the people of God used to sacrifice animals and lambs to atone for their sin, to pay for their sin. It was something that God had provided for them as some way of making up for their shortcomings. And so they would, they would get a lamb, they'd bring it to the temple to the priest, they'd place their hand on the lamb's head, as if to say they were transferring their guilt and their sin to this animal, and then it would be sacrificed in their place. So then John comes along and says, Behold the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. Substitution. Jesus took our unholiness so that we might receive his holy life. Our sin was counted to him so that we might receive his righteousness. For them I sanctify myself that they too may be truly sanctified. So church, if you believe this, if if you put your faith in Christ, you are already counted as holy in God's eyes. Just let that settle on your heart. You, in God's eyes, are righteous. You are holy. You are set apart. You are clean. You are now free from the burden of becoming dedicated enough, holy enough, good enough. And the wondrous thing is that when we give this burden to Jesus, we are freed to pursue holiness, unity and the mission of God with freedom and joy like we've never known before. Jesus became everything for us as our substitute. And he himself prayed for our protection, our unity and our holiness. So I want to end by asking you a question. Are you praying for these things? Are you pursuing these things? Imagine the difference it would make if all of us, even just once a week, were praying for our protection of each other, for the unity with one another, for the holiness of each other. Imagine what God might do through us. The same Jesus who prayed these things for us is now in heaven listening to us. So why don't we come together now and pray to him who is seated on the throne. Let's pray together. Jesus, we, we thank you that you see us. We thank you that you are present, that you are here in us. We thank you that you care for us and that you prayed for us, Lord. Jesus, we just first of all just want to receive everything that you did on our behalf. Well, we, we hand our burdens over to you, our sin, our shame, our guilt, our difficulties, and we just receive your perfect life. We put our faith in you. You have done all that is necessary to make us right with God. Thank you, Jesus. And Lord, we just pray for our friends here this morning that don't know you. We just pray for all those who don't say they don't call themselves a Christian here this morning. Lord, we just want to pray your blessing over them. And we just pray, Jesus, that you would reveal yourself to them. That you would let them see you, that you would encounter them, and that they would be able to answer the question of who you are with a resounding yes, you are Lord. You are Lord. And Father, we just want to pray now together for our protection. Lord, guard us as we go into the world to love people and tell them about you. Guard us from those who don't like that. 
guard us from Satan who opposes that. God, we want to ask for our unity. Jesus, keep us together. Fill us with love for one another. Help us to speak well of the other. Help us to keep quiet if there's a negative comment that comes into our mind. Help us to pursue unity and harmony in you, Jesus. And Lord, we ask that you would set us apart. Show us what it means to be your followers. Set us apart. Make us different. Use us for your glory. We love you, Jesus. And we pray all of this in your precious name. Amen.